This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. Reading from chapter 13. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of the mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Continuing in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads in prayer for just a moment. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth give you glory and honor. And may they draw men and women, young and old, to you closer, that they might see you and love you and desire to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to comment this morning on the text from Romans that ends with verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I struggled for many years as a young priest trying to make sense out of that. I tend to read scripture fairly literally, and putting on Jesus Christ sounded too much like putting on a coat. And that didn't make sense at all because he was a person. Um, and, uh, and years went by and I would stumble over that as a, as a young priest. I was, in, uh, I was ordained at, uh, a deacon at 25 and a priest at 26, and, um, and, and it was in the Episcopal Church. And I was ordained on Valentine's Day of 1971. And we moved immediately from the Washington, D.C. metro area, where I'd been an assistant, to northeastern Montana, where I had three churches. I was... Um, I was lured there by the bishop of Montana who said, David, I know that you would like to be rector of your own church. And if being rector of one church is good, being rector of three churches is three times better. (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) But as a young priest, I jumped at it, and off we went. But I very much brought the urban sensibilities and 
and formatting of having grown up in the nation's capital in an urban, suburban setting to that place of ranches and farms, um, agriculture. And we lived in a small town that was the county seat, 3,000 people, the hub of northeastern Montana. It really was the hub at 3,000 people. And the next county over was where one of my other churches was, 71 miles away, in Phillips County. One of my churches in Phillips County, Malta, in Malta, Montana, was uh, 50 miles from Canada. So it was cold in the, uh, in the winter, and it was surprisingly hot in the summer. And one of my parishioners, who really was the one who kept the church in Malta, Montana, going year after year, because priests came and priests went. That wasn't the place where priests wanted to arrive and stay for the rest of their life. It was a place to go to, but a place that hopefully after you did, it, uh, did well, you would move to something bigger and more urban. And he kept the church going. And he saw this young 26-year-old priest from the nation's capital, and he decided, I needed some education in what the land and the people were really about. And so, uh, on a March day, with our coats on, because it's still cold in northern Montana in March, we drove down south of the city about 50 miles to an extremely large sheep ranch. It was a, a large ranch. It's called, it, it was called then the Matador. And it was run by a family uh, that had immigrated in the early 1900s from the Basque region of France. The ranch had uh, 30,000 acres of deeded land and 30,000 acres of U.S. government lease land. 60,000 acres. That's 90 square miles of land. They ran sheep. They ran a lot of sheep. They ran sheep on a scale that you really couldn't imagine in Georgia or South Carolina. As I was taken around, I was shown that it was lambing season. And the lambs were being born uh, in these huge lambing sheds. Now, there were five of the sheds, each one as large as a Walmart store. And inside were pens for probably five to seven ewes. And they would be in there in a sheltered environment, watched carefully, and each, each shed probably had somewhere between two and 5,000 sheep. This was a huge operation. Everything needed to flow smoothly. One of the curious things about sheep is that uh, a ewe might have a lamb or twins, rarely, but, but some of the time, triplets. And Every now and then, 
and for reasons no one can figure out, a ewe will decide that one of her lambs she doesn't want, and she will reject it and push it aside. She won't accept it. She won't feed it. And that lamb will surely die unless someone intervenes. Now, if you're running a small operation with a few dozen sheep, that probably is your, your kid's 4-H project uh, for the year, is to take that little bum lamb and bottle feed it and raise it and take it to the 4-H. But if you're running thousands, tens of thousands of sheep, the number of so-called bum lambs are so many that you can't do that. And so another of the oddities is the little lambs are pretty fragile. It's not uncommon for a lamb to die either in childbirth or shortly thereafter or, or in the first week. So as I walked in with all my sensibilities of an East Coast urban mind, one of the things that shocked me was there was a, a pile of dead little lambs. And they had all been skinned. And I thought, well, now, why in the world would they go to the trouble of skinning all those little lambs? I mean, surely the, the market isn't so bad that you've got to squeeze out every little fleece possible. I brought my sensibilities from urban America. And we went on inside, and we walked up to one pen, and what I saw was surprising. There was a ewe all by herself. And they were in another pen. They were fitting a fleece that had been taken off of a dead lamb that had, if you will, arm holes and leg holes cut in it. And they were putting it on that little lamb. That was a rejected lamb. And they took some of the blood from the backside of the fleece and they smeared it all over the face of that little lamb. And they took it over to the solitary ewe and presented this. This was the fleece of the lamb she had lost. Normally, you can't, you can't ask a ewe to foster another lamb. They won't want to have anything to do with it. They'll sniff it. I imagine even for a mother ewe, all lambs pretty much look alike. I mean, sheep, sheep do, but the sense of smell is very acute, and she would sniff it. But what she would smell is her scent coming through the, the wool of that baby lamb that had, been, had the fleece on it. And she would sniff the blood that had been smeared on the face. And she would begin to lick it off and clean it. And she would then let it nurse and feed it. It's called fostering 
And, and it works on a large scale, one at a time. And so she adopted that, and after about a week of it nursing with that mother, her milk going through that lamb's body, the new lamb took on the scent of the mother. And you could take the fleece off. You were done. But it was still a traumatic thing to see a pile of dead little animals defleeced and all this adoption stuff going on over here. And I didn't quite know how to make sense of all that. I apologize, but it took me 10 years to make sense out of it. Well, it, uh, it's really in a way, it speaks to what the verse was, put ye on Christ Jesus. We come before our Heavenly Father asking Him to forgive our sins. We want to draw closer to Jesus. And our Father does forgive our sins. But the evidence of our sinfulness is still, still there because, for one thing, we don't stop sinning. We may try to cut back. I've found that the Christian life, if you have a, a list of do's and don'ts for a checklist, at the end of every day when you're running down your tally, you've got a lot more of the things that you weren't supposed to do that get checked that you did, and fewer of the things that you should have done and didn't get checked. And it's, it's a struggle like that to say, I want to be better. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to draw closer. But still the old ways still creep in here and there. So, what I think, as the lamb had another lamb's fleece put on it and brought for the mother, and what she saw was her own in the fleece that was presented. And she accepted it and fully included it. So our Heavenly Father, when He sees us, we are, in a sense, standing at the foot of the cross with the blood from our Savior's sacrifice dripping on us, being covered with the blood. Do you remember back, well, neither of us were there, but clear back in, in Exodus, when Moses was telling the Israelites what they were to do the night before the great departure, they were to sacrifice a lamb and they were to take some hyssop, a little branch from a bush, and dip it in the blood. And they were to mark the lintel, and of course it drips down onto the threshold, and the doorposts, so that the angel of death, as he came through Egypt land, would pass over that home and they would have life. And when you, when you think about 
marking the lintel and the threshold and the doorpost, you have just made the sign of the cross in the blood of the Lamb. That house is marked. Even back then, God, our Heavenly Father, before the foundation of the universe, which now I guess they're saying is somewhere between 14.4 billion and maybe some say now maybe 27 billion years old. I guess time, if it's God's time, doesn't, doesn't calculate anyway. But that kind of, of time gets condensed down to our kind of time. But God had planned before he began to say, let there be light. That he would have something called people at some point in his creation that he would give to them an ability to discern him and the difference between right and wrong in a way that other creation did not have. In a sense, we're an experiment. But God knew if he gave us freedom of choice rather than simply make us a a robot, an artificial intelligence. If he gave us freedom of choice, we would, sooner or later, make a wrong choice. And so he knew from before the foundation of the world that he would have to provide for sin and how to overcome it. It says in the uh, Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the um, penalty of sin is death. It didn't say a penalty of the preponderance of sin. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. You break one, even a minor one. You lose the gift of life and you inherit the penalty, death. So actually, even between somebody who sins a lot and those who sin very little, they have one thing in common. We're all under the death penalty. We all need a savior. Every single one of us. No one accepted. Well, that's where Jesus Christ comes. Our Father sent Jesus into the world in order to be the Lamb of God. When you, now when you, you hear the word Lamb of God, I want you to think of it just a little bit differently, a little bit more expansively. It's the, it's the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us. I always wondered, how does blood clean? Blood gets on stuff, and it's hard to get out. I did learn that hydrogen peroxide takes it out pretty good. But blood is hard to get out. You really don't want to get blood on things that are nice. So how, does, how, how is blood so good it, that it cleanses? Your blood and mine cleanses and feeds every single cell of your body. You have trillions of cells in your body. 
Every single one of them needs to be cleansed by your blood and nourished by your blood. And so the preeminent cleanser is blood. Yours, mine, but preeminently Jesus. The, the cleansing is only part of it. I've found as I have aged that I want to draw closer to Jesus. Some days are better than others. Some days I feel closer to Jesus, and the next day I feel like not quite as close as the day before. If you're really trying to draw close to Jesus, you may have that same kind of back and forth. Somebody takes your parking place, probably less. <laughs> Somebody takes your place in the pew, probably less. The, the example that we have to draw closer and closer to Jesus finally comes down to putting on his coat. Literally putting it on and wrapping ourselves in it. We do our best, but we're not operating off a checklist of things to do and not to do. I have found that as I have grown older and longer with the Lord, the things that used to be really important to me in a worldly sense have just kind of fallen away. They've diminished. The enthusiasm for them isn't there. And things that I used to not be much interested in that the Lord was interested in keep rising in importance and interest in my life. And I look and I say, I don't know how God is doing this, but he's, he's diminishing the things that are of lesser importance. And he's drawing my attention and my affection toward things that I didn't used to have much for. As you, as you walk longer and longer with the Lord, he impacts you by his spirit imparting to you his loves, the things he walks away from or around, and the things that he walks toward. I mean, keep in mind, Jesus went to have a drink of water with the Samaritan woman at the well. He didn't run the other direction. He wanted to have a conversation with her. He wanted to give her words of life. A lot of us are finding that there are situations and things that we're being drawn to more and more the more time we spend with the Lord. And part of not worrying about the needs of this world and the, the, the social requirements of this world and focusing more on the Lord is, is just wrapping ourselves in the Lord and focusing our affection on Him. Well, as we go forward 
in ministry, and in mission. I think this passage gives us an indication of where our attention should be. Focusing on the Lord and letting Him impact us and pull us closer and closer and closer. And as we draw closer to Jesus Christ, we draw closer to the Father. And we also experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit as well. And on this Sunday, I lay this before you. It's the story of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who died for you and died for me, and has his arms wide open to welcome us each into a very personal, very welcoming life with him. In Jesus' name, amen.